trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I am so glad you could join us today. Oh, yeah, we got a lot of wrong think to indulge in. I'm joined by Gary Welch. Hi, Gary. Hello. And I, I always consider wrong thinking as being unpopular speech that should be popular. Yes. Yep. It's it's thinking it's thinking for yourself. It's saying what needs to be said, whether it's popular or not, and and not being unduly concerned about the consequences of saying something, which is which is saying something in a time of cancel culture, etc. Uh, by the way, our program brought to you in part today by Monticello College. Uh, I believe tomorrow afternoon, actually, I'm going to be talking with uh, Dr. Shannon Brooks, and he and I are going to talk a little bit about what happens. There's something very powerful that happens when you read good books, or let's just say a good book, and then you sit down and discuss that book with others who have read it. It's a thing called colloquia, and it's uh, it's kind of a dying art. But if you want to you want to build your brain, that's a great way to do it. We're also sponsored by HSLMO.com and Pure Light, the next generation of light, as well as Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. And Gary, it's been a year. I know um, I, I was commemorating last week on the show when, when things started popping up on my Facebook memories about how much things had shifted overnight as the the reality of the COVID pandemic set in and remember everything changed store shelves are empty things are locked down people staying at home um give me your reactions here we are a year later how have we fared over the last year i think as a country we have absolutely did the worst um i don't want to call it a total failure but we were probably in the bottom third of proper reactions, the uh, the way that other countries reacted to this and the things that they put in place and the outcomes that they had as far as how quickly they rebounded, how quickly their economy came back on on path. All those things were big indicators that they were doing something at least a little better than the way that we handled it. And I really do feel that our response to this was the worst. Um, we 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 took the one that caused the most damage and did the least good. Yeah, there's I, you know, I think you and I were probably pretty consistent, even during the times uh, when we weren't really sure where things were going. We were urging caution. Let's be careful what's going on. We could see the the damage being done almost immediately. I think I'm I'm going to come down on the side of those who say, you know, um, this may have been the worst public policy in a century. Robert Wright wrote a piece for the American Institute for Economic Research talking about this. And if you want to sum this up in a headline, just, you know, so people don't want to get bogged down in the details. He says closing down the U.S. economy in response to COVID-19 was probably the worst policy in at least 100 years. And I, I want to just get your reaction to that headline. Agree? Disagree? Oh, absolutely agree. The The damage that was caused by this, and I don't even think we have really felt the full um, consequences of their decisions 
they they just went out and took out a massive amount of debt. And yes, we're used to government taking out amount of you know a massive amount of debt, but this time around, you know, they really took on a lot, a lot more than I think we can even handle. And they did that because of the decisions, the bad decisions they made before that. They made another bad decision on top of it to say, okay, now we got to pay for it. And I think that about five years from now, maybe even less, that's going to come back to haunt us in a really big way. Interesting. I I think I've asked you before, but again, I'm going to pose the question for those who may not have heard earlier conversations you, you and I have had about this. Is there ever going to be real accountability, in your opinion, for the people in authority who ordered these costly, damaging lockdowns, especially now that we have a year to look back and and realize those places, places that locked down the hardest fared no better and in some cases actually fared worse than places that did very little in terms of shutting things down? So that becomes an issue of really marketing and the ability to get your message out. Because I think if the message does get out, we can definitely demonstrate a lot of incompetence, a lot of bad thinking, a lot of bad policy. We're seeing some of that come out. I mean, the whole Como debacle with with the nursing homes and how he is reacting to that and the responses that our people are giving to that. But I, I as yet to see the connect the dots. I mean, how can you sit there and go, okay, Como did all of these bad things and it was really reckless of what he did. And yet there were a lot of governors that were doing the equivalent kind of things. They weren't like that as far as putting sick people into nursing homes. I mean, that that is really, if you think about it, re- absolutely ridiculous. But they were doing the equivalent type of things, and nobody's connecting the dots of saying, well, you know what? Maybe all of them were really messed up on how they handled this. It makes me wonder, and, and I'm, this is, here I'm going to voice a little bit of my paranoia out loud here. Um, because it was done once, the precedent has been established, and it makes me very curious to see if we are going to see another push towards another hard, hard lockdown in the near future. Not because necessarily COVID necessitates it or maybe some variant of it. I think that's the new thing right now, the variants, the variants. But um, I wonder if they're going to do it just to just to show, hey, in fact, we do have this power and we're going to assert it whenever we feel that we need to, which given the current climate Given the fact that we've turned Washington, we've allowed them to turn Washington, D.C. into a green zone, you know, like occupied territory. Um, I'm thinking this is a really unhealthy time, uh, not counting even this is this isn't even counting all the cost of last year in economics, in terms of turning the Constitution into uh, basically a useless piece of paper. You know, the, the things that were lost, the due process. I mean, I just saw a video this last week. A police officer in a bank in Texas arrested a lady, a, a 60-year-old grandma, because she wouldn't put the mask on when she went into the bank to withdraw her money and close her accounts. That's a, that's a sick society, in my opinion. So, to me, that 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 begs the question again about, what was the real intentions? And I always talk about this. Never, never take anything on face value in politics. What they say they're doing and why they're doing it very, very seldom is really the case of what they're doing and why they're doing it. And so the issue would be, did they do this to really try to stop the disease and try to control it? Or was it a power play from the very beginning? 
And there's, you know, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist. I'm probably the worst guy when it comes to conspiracy theories. I, <laughs> I tend to debunk all of them really quickly. But there is things that I see that shows that this really wasn't about controlling the disease. It really was an issue of how far can we go? How much can we do? And here's the big indicator. I mean, now things have kind of settled down and, and we are getting this pushback. We are getting these evidence and these results that says, hey, it didn't work. And yet you don't see legislatures trying to come back and say, OK, we're going to hold our governors more accountable now. So to make sure that they don't do this again, that has not happened. Very true. And you have to ask yourself why. And and that's the question I was just going to ask you, actually. I know in, in our home state of Utah, there was serious talk going into this session of we need to clip the governor's wings and make sure he is not uh, legislating, which he is not supposed to be doing, make sure that public health officials aren't legislating where they're not directly accountable to the voters. And somehow uh, the measures that I think were supposed to address that were, were stopped or killed or otherwise just died of neglect. Yeah. And so that 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 shows intent, I would think. Right. Well, it's it's frustrating because I have a sense if we don't get this under control and by that, I mean, definitively, the people put their foot down and say, this is not going to happen again. We will find another way to handle this. I worry that we're going to see it imposed on us again, probably in the near future. But I'm I'm thinking sooner than later, only to to demonstrate. Oh, yes, we can. And we will as often as we feel that we need to. I mean, that matches the language and, coming from the, the White House on down. Right. And I do believe it's for those of us who are wrong thinkers, it's how do we frame this argument? We really have to frame this argument right. Otherwise, we're going to lose out. And a lot of us have been framing the argument wrong. And, and it's caused problems. Okay. In a nutshell, we're going to the break here in, in about 40 seconds here. Uh, Tell me what's what's the wrong framing? What's the right framing? Let's examine that when we come back. Okay, let's do it. Okay, you, can you give us a thumbnail sketch? Yeah, go with incompetence. Oh, ooh, I like where this is headed. All right, we'll take a break. Gary Welch is my guest. Stay with us. We'll be back after these messages. The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. We may be tired, we may be grumpy. Thank you, Daylight Savings Time, but uh, Gary Welch is here with me. And we are soldiering on in pursuit of truth and and engaging in a bit of wrong thinking as we go. All right, let's let's talk contrast, a right approach, a wrong approach. Where do you want to begin? So a lot of people will take this approach based on ideological philosophies. And those of us that are usually outspoken and are very active in politics, these ideologies is what drive us. Is we're, we're very motivated about constitutional uh, parameters that they have and whether or not it's constitutional that they did this. We look at things like 
their power control. This is all about power. We look at these politicians as being evil people with evil intentions. And if you really want to get that mass appeal, we're going to have to take a different approach because I've always talked about this. The average voter, the average American voter is really not engaged. They really don't care. And you have to appeal to them with a message that they are going to recognize and resonate with. And so if you attack it and you and you talk about it from an ideologically type of frame of mind, everyone's going to go, yeah, whatever. But if you approach it from something that they do know and do agree with, which is government officials are incompetent, that is a message that they can resonate with. That's a message that we could say, this was not a problem caused by evil people doing evil things, but by incompetent people doing incompetent things. And they messed up. And because they messed up, this is why you have these problems. And I, I'll tell you, there's a bit of a dilemma here in, in the sense that when, when we when we take this problem to the public, I understand what you're saying. We have to persuade them. We can't just, you know, it can't just be an ideological harangue. Right. And and it, it reminds me of a story I heard about um, a, a company that fires their chief engineer because um, yeah, I guess they, they, they decide to let him go. And he asks the company president, why are you dismissing me? And the president says, well, you let us make a mistake, and it cost this company a lot of money. And the engineer says, well, now you remember, I specifically advised you not to do that. And the response was, yeah, but you didn't pound the table when you advised us. And, you know, I'm not looking for an excuse to get louder or to to be obnoxious in getting the message out. But sometimes, Gary, I wonder if, if people, if we don't give as much emphasis to something um, as as we could, and if, if that's one of the reasons why people tend to, to take it lightly. So um, I talk about a thing that I call Marley's Chains. And, and in politics, it's just like that character in Scrooge, where you have these chains being placed on you, but you don't feel them. And then this is where we are at as a society. If we really looked at the chains that they have shackled us with, and, and, and it would be long, you know, it would be a mile long chain with heavy, you know, buckets and things like that on it. And, and it's really a heavy chain that we're carrying, but we don't feel it and we don't see it. And the American public doesn't feel it and don't see it. And so the problem is, is when you are arguing about the chains, everybody's looking around going, what chains? I don't see any chains. I don't feel any chains. I don't. What are you guys talking about? And so they can't relate to it. But we can relate to government incompetence because we see it all the time. Every time you go into a government entity, whatever, whether it's to get your driver's license or to deal with your county organization, it doesn't matter. You are immediately exposed to incompetence because the bureaucracy that we talked about before has established that, that they have gotten to the point where they cannot help but be incompetent. And so if we take that message that this is an issue of incompetence and these people made bad decisions based on bad data and that they are just not even capable of making good decisions regarding these kinds of issues, why give them the power then? Why allow them to do this again to us? I just feel like the we will get the end results that we're looking for. And if we don't, then they're just going to do this again you know, a couple of years from now, they're going to create another type of crisis. And here we go. Yep. I want to refer to uh, 
Robert E. Wright's article for the American Institute for Economic Research, where he talks about how it was the worst public policy in a century. And there, there's one thing. Yes. I I know this feels like, well, you're trying to assign blame. I'm just trying to make something very, very clear. So this is merely for clarification, not to you know find a scapegoat. Him, him, get him. But when you hear people talk about it, and I'm hearing it in the news media, I hear politicians say this. They say, this virus has closed this many businesses. This virus has destroyed this many jobs or, you know, put this many people into financial difficulty. The virus, the virus, it wasn't the virus. The virus did nothing except what viruses do, and that is to move through the population. Every bit of the damage that we hear described is the result of an individual in authority making a decision to enact some public policy. That's where the damage came from. And uh, maybe, Gary, maybe it's because I work in the medium of words, but uh, that kind of uh, duplistic, you know, well, we didn't do it, the virus, uh, there, that's, that's what the, the cause of all this is. It's, it's uh, infuriating to, to see people duck that responsibility. I get why they want to. I mean, in a, in a less civilized time, buckets of tar and you know, sacks of feathers probably would have already been applied. Thankfully, we're a lot more civilized. You know, until you look at Washington, D.C. And that's why we have to push the consequences of what happened and demonstrate and show those consequences. One of the great things we do have is lots of information. And and we have both international results and data of countries that took a different reaction and had different results and states within the United States itself. We had several states that took different actions yep. and had different results out of that. And we have to show that we have to look to because you're, you're right. They're blaming it on the virus and we could go in there and say, well, the virus was in South Dakota just as much as it was here. Right. But they had very different results. The virus was in was, was in Sweden and South Korea just as much as it was here. And they had different results. And I guess I, I'm sounding like a broken record when I say this, but don't just take the media narrative for, for what you should know about this. Um, what Gary's describing, this is absolutely the data exists. If you want to see, well, how did South Dakota fare there? There is research that will show you how they've done. Now, again, I'm going to stick my neck out here and tell you the American Institute for Economic Research has done a marvelous job of analysis and and chasing the data, going after all the boring little details that help make up the big picture. And, and this is why I strongly recommend subscribe to their emails. You will be much better informed and able to see what's going on here. And uh, something you mentioned here a moment ago, Gary, this is mentioned in Robert E. Wright's article. And, and it just we have this disconnect and people who can try to minimize the shutdowns. Well, it wasn't that bad. We could still go to the grocery store. We still all got stuff. People weren't starving to death. Here's the thing that Robert Wright reminds us of. He says, first of all, your food does not come from the supermarket. It comes from places like the world's oceans and the Great Plains, mighty fields of beans, corn and wheat, orchards, ranches, all the places that process your fish, veggies and meat. He says our cornucopia arises not from your need, but from the incentives of people to sow and reap, collect and harvest. Why do they do that? Because there is economic incentive for them to do so. Meeting your needs helps them meet their needs. But when we shut down the economy, guess what? That whole system of the market shuts down as well. And with that comes some pretty nasty consequences. 
Anything else we need to add here? We got about we got about 30 seconds left. Right. I just wanted to add one thing, and that is, you know, I want to achieve government transparency. And so the big thing for me would be finding out why they made these decisions, how they made that. And that's going to require us to become citizen journalists. Do not depend upon the media and the regular journalists to do this. This is something we've got to do ourselves and create these citizen journalists to do these Freedom of Information Acts and request this information to be known. Because I think there's something there. Here, here. So this is your call to action. We're going to pick up our conversation yeah. with Gary Welch, just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show. Welcome back, I should say. Gary Welch is my guest, and we're talking about any number of topics here. But, um, Gary, one of the things that you had mentioned when we had touched base earlier... You had talked a little bit about uh, the prospect of maybe discussing gun control options. And it looks like uh, at the federal level, particularly, there are Democrats control the House and the Senate. They seem pretty determined to get something gun control related, you know, on the books. And this is a conversation you and I have had multiple times. And here we are once again, demonstrating evidence that when the Democrats get in charge, they push their agendas. And when the Republicans get in charge, nothing, nothing, just crickets every time. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, why is that? Why are, are the Democrats just more, you know, um, emotionally involved in their causes? Are they more dedicated to their causes? But why is that? Why and why isn't there any reversals when the Republicans are in charge? Why aren't they just trying to reverse this? I know Trump tried to do it on a couple of things, but. You never saw Congress do that. And here we go. They're they're in charge now. And what are the first things, you know, that they're trying to do? They're trying to change up voting. They're trying to change our our um, sexual orientation of how we look at things like that. They're pushing that agenda and then they're pushing gun control really, really hard. Do you think they have any pros- any uh, you know prospect of succeeding? Yeah, I think they've. I'm pretty sure they will succeed. Interesting. I mean, look, I don't doubt that they they are probably committed to passing laws. I think those laws are going to be utterly useless, though. And, and, you know, I mean, I'm looking at existing laws. um, Section 922R, your gun must have this many American-made parts in order to be legit. Nobody checks that. And and Section 922R, you know, is is something I mean, granted, it's it's something only the ATF really probably knows about or cares about. But holy cow, the number of people who have bought guns and bought ammo and continue to buy them up with their stimulus checks, you know, um, I don't think anybody's buying those things up with the intent that, yes, I'll go register it. Yes, I'll hand it in if you tell me to. Um, I, I think it's I think the Democrats may be trying to save face here, but I can't think of a single person that I know who has any intention of, of obeying whatever they put on paper. And, you know, if that sounds, well, horrible and, and, you know, outlandish, I'm like, you know, if they wrote something on paper telling me to throw my kid off a cliff, I wouldn't do that either. So I'm, I'm at peace about it because I already know it's not legitimate. 
and, and it will never be legitimate. So they can try what they want, but I'm, they're not going to get my consent. They're not going to get my compliance. And I, and I know I'm far from the only person who, who feels that way. I mean, states are stepping up for crying out loud. I, I just, like I say, they may get it on paper, but that's a very different thing from whatever they're actually trying to achieve, which I believe is a monopoly on force. Right. I, I guess then the argument would be, do we give them that inch or do we fight them every inch? Do we always fight them at, at every level we can? But here's the problem. I mean, I don't see anybody out there fighting them. This is what bothers me is the representation, at least on the federal level. There is no fight. There is no opposition. Not there from is the Republicans. No... You're right. There's there's nothing meaningful happening. But yeah, maybe I'm naive for suggesting this. It's possible. I, I may be missing something. I think even even better than fighting them head on is simply you turn your backs on them, ignore them and go on with your life. There are simply too many people. There are too many firearms in private hands for them to ever have any kind of meaningful enforcement. That's my opinion. Anyway, I think they can be ignored and, and like prohibition. You know, there will come a point where it's like, you know what, let's take these stupid laws off the books. They're not doing anything. Nobody's obeying them. And and uh, even if it does come to somebody gets taken into court, I think you would see jury nullification happening at unprecedented levels, assuming they could they couldn't effectively weed all the potential, you know, freedom lovers out of a particular jury. And I, I would agree with that, that there is quite a bit of we've gone, you know, we've, we've gotten to a point where it's going to be very hard for them to enforce all of this. But I'm not sure if that's what the agenda is all about. I don't think it is about enforcement. It is about um, creating the laws and saying we can and you cannot stop us in doing that. I, I always go back to when the communists first took over and when the Nazis first took over. Everyone treated them like kind of like jokes, like, oh, yeah, they're passing all these laws and they're really nothing. And it doesn't affect me all that much. And they just kind of shrugged it off and laughed it off and really didn't do anything about it. And then, you know, somewhere between five and 20 years later, they said, OK, now we're starting to enforce it. And all of a sudden now those those funny laws and those those out, you know, outrageous laws were being strictly enforced and they were coming to get you if you didn't. I don't know. I've always felt like um, the biggest trigger for the quote unquote, the revolution when, when we pick up the guns and fight will be when they come to pick up the guns, that, that, that will be the trigger. You know, I, and I, I know personally me, myself, I'm in that boat that uh, you pass all those laws, you do whatever you want to do. I'm, I'm not going to do anything and I'm not going to say anything, but the day you come to get the guns, that to me re- registers to the point that, okay, now we're fighting. And and I'm with you there. And I, I understand, Gary, I totally get somebody listening in on this conversation might think, oh my gosh, they really are wrong thinkers. They're radical wrong thinkers. This doesn't seem radical to me. To me, this is, this is what a reasonable, peaceful principled individual would would understand and i'm not saying that it's pleasant it's you know to me the thought of wow there may come a time in my life where i have to stand up and protect my rights or at least claim my rights and defend them to where it could cause harm it could co- it could be at the cost of my life 
But I came, right. I came to peace with that decision a long, long time ago. Uh, and, and the thing that will distinguish me from the people who would try to take those freedoms from me is that I won't be the one to initiate that violence. That will be something Correct. that they choose to do. And, and there, I say this with moral certainty. If you're not the one who initiated it, you are definitely allowed to defend yourself. And you and I have talked about this a lot in that violence is always the last resort. And, and you have to, you know, we put that line really, really far away that you have to do a lot to get to that line where I said, okay, that's it. And, but, you know, just I say that because of the actual confiscation of the weapons is the signal that says, we are coming to throw you into the gulags. We are coming to, you know, if you do not think the way we want you to think and do the things we want you to do, we are going to kill you. We're going to throw you in prison and stuff like that. And so that that becomes the trigger point of saying, okay, I'm, I'm ready to do that. But as long as there are like constitutional sheriffs out there and there's state legislatures yep. and county legis- organizations that are resisting, then I'm all, I'm, I'm like with you, go ahead, pass all those laws you want. We're not going to follow them and we're good. I just feel like we should, though, be putting up a resistance to this and fighting back. And if it's not going to happen on the federal level, maybe we need to reconsider about where we're fighting this war. And and let's take it back to the local level. Then let's see if we can accomplish things locally. And. I lean that direction. That's not going to come as a surprise to anybody who's listened to me for any length of time. I believe there is a legitimate thing called interposition, and it's primarily carried out at the state level where states will interpose themselves between abusive federal policy and their citizens. I also can see it happening on the local level, and that's how I'd prefer to see it happen because I... I don't really want a one-size-fits-all approach, and I understand. There may be people in some, you know, hamlet in California where they believe, you know, guns are icky. They cause crime and, and bad breath. Okay, great. So we don't want any guns in our community. I find that disagreeable, but if that's what they want for their community, I'm more inclined to respect that than I am, you know, somebody, you know, at the top level saying, okay, this is how it's going to be for everybody right on down the line. Because I have the choice. I don't have to live in that community. I can, I can choose to live somewhere where I have, you know, a relatively better measure of freedom. And I would certainly exercise that. And it always does allow for those communities then to show the differences. Like, you know, like gun control. Those, those towns and cities and states that don't have strong gun control laws, they've already demonstrated that their crime is not any higher than anywhere else. In fact, the, 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 the areas that have the most gun control, all laws usually have the worst crime. Yep. Not a place that, that I'd want to be. I've got a good friend who is from Chicago. He sends me weekly tallies. I guess he has friends in Chicago who send him, you know, the updates. Hey, this many people shot, this many people killed this weekend in, in Chicago. Uh, those numbers are never encouraging Gary, like to the, to the point, uh, I, I used to think, man, I'd love to visit Chicago. I'd love to go there and, and just, you know, see the sights. I'm not so sure. <laughs> I'll take a rain check, I guess. we got to take a break. We will be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Gary Welch is my guest, and I'm just going to offer this warning because I'm sure it's, if, if there's any segment that will prompt, uh, you know, a response from the fact checkers, Gary, we're going to talk about some things here involving last year's election. And apparently, if you question whether last year's election was the most honest and transparent election ever in human history, uh, that, uh, you know, kind of flags you as a, as a pariah. But we need to talk about this because there is a, a bill that is being considered. Um, I, I'm trying to remember the correct name for the people. Is, is that what they're calling this act? Right. And tell me, what, what exactly does this act purport to accomplish? Oh, they, they're, they're trying to get so that more people can vote. And, and that's always like a trigger word for me. It's like, yeah, we want more people to vote. Um, it's like, well, we're not really stopping anyone from voting. We just want to make sure it's fair and right. But they use that, that they want to create these venues to allow more diversity and more voting opportunities for everybody. And as we've seen in these elections, um, that really doesn't translate into actual voters voting. Yeah, it's it seems to me that there and I, I'll admit, look, I haven't read the bill, so there may be something hidden in there that that I'm not seeing. But what it purports to do, in my estimation, is it sounds like it's kind of. Uh, de facto going back and everything that was questionable that could have cast some doubts on the way last this last election was held is now being legalized. It's being brought under the umbrella of no, 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 that's legitimate and shored up with, like you mentioned, ways to, to bring other uh, voters without, you know, benefit of uh, making sure they're actually you know allowed to vote or citizens or anything like that into the mix. It seems like it seems like if if. If that was a fix, if that wasn't a fix last year that put Joe Biden in the White House, this is the fix to whatever it was that happened. So a good example of that is just mail-in voting. And so rather than address the issue that was very much proven, which was that there are some problems with mail-in voters and voting, per se, of what's going on with that, that there was fraud that was able to occur because of mail-in voting, nothing in the bill addresses how to correct that, but it does say we're going to increase it. Now, that seems to me to be absolutely saying we our goal is to create more voter fraud because we're not going to correct the issue. We're not going to make it better. We're not going to improve it, but we are going to expand it. And, and statehood for Washington, D.C., Let's talk about why that's why that's a bad idea. Where could that even be a good? I can't even justify it. Why would you even try to justify it? Why? I I would think it would be only for the purpose of packing the the voting public with uh, with dependents. And I don't mean that to sound, you know, condescending, you know, welfare rats. That's not what I'm saying. But people who are beholden to politicians beholden to government um, a per- versus a person who is working and, and paying his own bills and he's responsible for putting food on the table. I think you can see where a person's self-interest might be manipulated or otherwise swayed to go uh, the direction of, you know, who's who's looking out for my interests. If they had a logical argument for it, I could see it. 
But I mean, Washington, D.C., when you look at the country and, the, and everything, that is so such a small area. I mean, that would be like the same as going out and saying, yeah, let's let's give statehood to Guam. You know, it's just like there's not that many people there that it, that it really justifies anything other than it gives you two more senators, which you really need and really want. And and the now I would say it's overrepresentation when you consider that these people have two senators for what a couple of hundred thousand people. Okay, does that work out right? I mean, is that fair to the rest of us? No, it's a, it's a it's a fair question. Uh, it's very disturbing to me that uh, still, at least in in the circles of polite society, you know, uh, where where approved opinions can be discussed. You dare not bring up anything remotely questioning the the uh, validity of this last election. And and I got to tell you, I got to state for the record, Gary, I don't know for sure. I don't know whether voter fraud took place on a large enough scale that it actually tipped the outcome of the election. But I don't I, I'll tell you what I do know is I don't think there was ever given a fair hearing of, of what it would have taken to sort that out and determine did it happen? Where did it happen? Did you see the article? The Washington Post has had to quietly walk back one of the big accusations they made prior to the vote count on uh, January 6th, which was, did you know President Trump called up? I think it was the it was one of the election officials. I want to say the secretary of state in Georgia and said, find the numbers. It never happened. That's not at all what he said. And this is only clear because a day or so ago, an audio recording of that phone call was released. And now the Washington Post quietly in a tiny little piece on the bottom of page D7, you know, is is walking this back. But in the meantime, we have two solid months of just agitation and, and rage over he tried to bribe or tried to force these officials to fudge the results of the election. I don't know what you do with that level of dishonesty. I mean, that's you want to talk about gaslighting and, and yet from from most of the media. Nothing crickets. That's a pretty that's a pretty damning silence. I don't really care. Um, I mean, look, Trump's a politician. He, he's not different in that regard. He's just like every other politician in that if he can manipulate things to go his way, he's going to do it. If he can make things happen so that things will work out to his favor, he's going to do it. If if he has the ability to use his power and his influence to get the results he's want, he's going to do it. That's just the way politicians are. And he's no different in that regard. And that's not like I'm mad, you know, just trying to to badmouth him or anything like that. I, I view them all the same. I do not discriminate when it comes to politicians. They're all the same in my viewpoint. And that's having you know that experience with them of knowing them, talking to them and learning how they think that I, I just the evidence to me has just been really overwhelming. But to me, the issue is we want to make sure that our voting system is fair and is accurate and is reporting what is really happening. The last thing that we want is a fraudulent voting system. And we should just say, who cares about who's winning or losing on this thing? Let's make sure the voting machines are right. And I, again, I'll point out to Georgia, which is a Republican state dominated by Republicans. 
that have voting machines that are that are being hacked and and having their voting you know the votes change them that's not a democrat republican thing that's a just a problem that we need to have and again why isn't in none of these bills are they addressing these these machines that have problems that we have been uh, talking about for well over 6 years now that these things are are being manipulated that they're not reporting the right information that is being put into them that there's all sorts of problems with them and yet this bill doesn't say yeah let's go and take a review of that and change that well anything coming out of washington dc i'm going to be skeptical of that's just common self-preservation nature gave us you know those instincts right so we know if we hear a bear growl nearby we know to run or something like that that's how i feel whenever congress starts looking like hey we're getting busy <laughs> they're rolling up their sleeves they're going to work that's when i want to really pay attention and say okay what are they really up to and by the way i agree with you gary more often than not if you just read the name of whatever legislation or policy they're trying to pass whatever that name says you run it through the Orwellian translator because it's more often than not going to accomplish exactly the opposite. This is also one of those bills where I do feel like we should fight back on the state level. And, and here's why I think this is a good one to fight back. I think you can win. I think states can win on this. I think they could fight back on on voter ID. I think they can fight back on on a lot of like, you know, mail in voting, all these things that these guys are trying to push. I think they could fight back and I think they win in the Supreme Court. It's something I would very much like to see, but I'll settle for seeing people within the sound of our voices becoming better informed, more active, more certain of who they are and what they stand for. And uh, that's where we'll begin. Any final thoughts, Gary? Yeah, that just, um, yeah, you know, get this message out. Really, I really would appreciate that if everybody starts spreading this message about how to fight back and what we should be fighting for. Absolutely. Okay, let's get together next week. I'm sure we'll find some other things to talk about. We'll see you then, Gary. Enough. This is The Brian Hyde Show.